If you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to the psalm that Sam read for us, Psalm 27. And as you hear in this text, this is a psalm for the vulnerable. This is a psalm for those who find themselves in a day of trouble that they cannot resolve for themselves. We don't know the precise historical context of this psalm, but David doesn't uh, tell us exactly uh, what it was that uh, prompted him to, to write this psalm, uh, but we know that he was vulnerable because we, we see it throughout the psalm. Look at me again at verses 2 and 3. David says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. He is, he is picturing those who, who come against him as a roaring lion seeking whom they may devour. They, they seek to eat up his flesh. And, and he says in, in verse 3, though an army encamp against me, though war arise against me, an army has come against him. It has besieged him. And while those statements could be taken as hypothetically, he speaks of when these things happen, if these things happen. When we turn to the end of the psalm, we realize that for David in this moment, they are certainly more than potentialities. They are more than merely hypotheticals. Look again at what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Those who are actually standing against me. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. We don't know the, the precise nature of what it is that David was facing, but, but he was vulnerable. He was surrounded by enemies. He was besieged by adversaries. An army was encamped against him. He was facing those who were seeking to devour his flesh. He found himself in a great day of trouble. We may not literally face armies the way that David often did, but we all know what it is to, to find ourselves in a day of trouble. We all know what it is to be vulnerable. We felt that acutely this past year and a half, have we, have we not? We have been in the, the midst of a, of a pandemic that, that has threatened our physical health. It, is, it has threatened us with, with the virus that for some is, is simply the flu, but for others is deadly. But it hasn't only been our physical health that has been at risk. Because of the pandemic, our financial health has also been at risk. The, the measures that have been taken to, to stop the spread of the disease have, have put many people out of work. They have reduced the hours of others. They, they have made it hard for many to make ends meet. It has been a difficult season financially. And whether we like to admit it or not, when, when we struggle to make ends meet, we are vulnerable. But of course, it hasn't only been our financial health. It has also been our emotional health. As we have been separated from family and from friends and from loved ones and from, from fellowship, as we have gathered with our, our faces covered, we have been cut off from that, that normal fellowship that we so desperately need. And our emotional health has been threatened. We have felt what it feels like to, to be vulnerable. And we have felt it intensely over the course of the past year and a half. And yet, we recognize that the threats that we have felt, they are not unique to a pandemic. 
Yes, maybe they were intensified, but, but the threats that we have felt over the past year and a half are part and parcel of life in this present evil age. There are always enemies who seek to devour our flesh. There are always enemies that would besiege us. We are always vulnerable. We, we are never able to, to guarantee even our next each day has enough trouble of its own, that Jesus said. And we cannot even add a hand's breadth to the span of our life. We cannot protect even a single hair of our head. We know what it is to feel vulnerable. And that means that we need to hear David's charge to wait, because ultimately that's where David is going. That, that is what David instructs the vulnerable to do. Here he's, he's instructing his own soul at the end of the psalm. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We, we see David do this in other psalms as well, where he, he is speaking to himself, he is speaking to his own soul, he's instructing his own heart. And he's calling upon his heart to do that which he knows he needs to do. He needs to wait for the Lord. And we need to hear that same call. We need to wait for the Lord when we feel vulnerable. But what does that mean? What does it mean to, to wait for the Lord? Well, well, think about the image when you are waiting on the one who can come to your help. You are basically entrusting yourself to him. Peter tells us that this is what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. Rather than taking matters into his own hands, he entrusted himself. He, he waited upon the Lord. He, he, he trusted God to provide for him the salvation that had been promised. And so when you are waiting, you are first of all resisting despair. You are, you are resisting that hopelessness that comes from knowing that the enemies you face are stronger than you. That the situation is, is beyond your ability to resolve. I, I think of Abraham as he's described for us in, in Romans chapter 4. Paul speaks of Abraham hoping against hope. In other words, David continued to, to maintain hope. Or Abraham continued to, to maintain his hope. He, he continued to believe in the Lord. He continued to trust him for his promises even when circumstances seemed to, to suggest that the fulfillment of the promise was impossible. Even when he looked at his own body, the, the, the body of his, his wife, he continued to believe that God would indeed keep the promise to provide him with an heir. He hoped against hope. He, he resisted despair. That's, that's part of waiting. But of course, when you resist despair, you also resist the, the temptation to, to deviate from the path. Look again at that language in, in verse 14. He says, be strong and let your heart take that's a, that's a familiar charge. Be strong and courageous. It's the charge that Joshua received before he was about to enter into the promised land, before he was about to begin the conquest. And the charge came with these instructions. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Do not deviate from the path. Do that which the Lord has given you to do. Walk the path that he has marked out for you. Do not, do not deviate. Do not turn. But wait for the Lord. Continue doing that which He has given you to do. Trusting Him to work things out for the good of those who love Him. That's what it means to, to wait for the Lord. To wait without despair. To wait without deviating from the path. To entrust yourself to Him. And to wait on His promised salvation. When we feel vulnerable, 
When we recognize that, that there are enemies against us, whether they be personal enemies or, or impersonal enemies, it, it does not matter. Whether it be a, a virus for your boss, it does not matter. When we face enemies who are seeking our harm, we must learn to wait for the Lord. It's what David is calling himself to do. It's what he is therefore calling us to do. But how? Waiting seems so simple. It seems like doing nothing. But we know how hard it can be. So how do we learn to develop the, the strength and the courage that is required for us to truly wait for the Lord in the day of trouble? I believe that that is the very question that David is answering here in this psalm. And he answers it in, in a threefold way. Really four. Uh, Sam was right. The last one is two, has two parts. But we're going we're to call it three here. All right? Uh, because three points sounds better. Right? So we're going we're to call it three. So, so yes, we must confess our faith. We must prioritize worship. And we must ask for grace. And we can see that these aren't actually uh, you know, three steps we take literally, but these are actually three parts of a, of a whole. Uh, they, they, they work together. They, 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 they form a single step of faith that we must learn to take. And so first it begins with confessing our faith. We, we see David doing this throughout the whole song, but particularly we see it in the first three verses. Look again at, at verse 2. We, we looked at the, the statement of the trouble. When evildoers assail me to eat it my flesh. But notice what he says. He says, it is my foes, it is my adversaries, it is they who shall stumble and fall. David says, when my enemies come against me to eat up my flesh, it is they who will stumble and fall. He says the same thing in, in verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a, a war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That is David boldly confessing his faith. I have nothing to fear. I will be confident. I know that it is my enemies, not myself, who shall stumble and fall. And this is what we are being called to. We are being called to confess the same faith. We are being called to, to follow in David's footsteps. But if we are going to do that, if we are going to understand how to, uh, how to make such a confession, we have to understand two things about such confessions. First, we need to understand that David's confidence, his, his confession of faith, is not mere positive thinking. He is, he is not merely wishing for the best. He is not merely naming it and Claiming it. This is not a groundless optimism, but on the contrary, look again at verse 1. His confidence is firmly rooted in the Lord. He is confident because he knows who the Lord is. He is confident because he knows that the Lord is his light and his salvation and his stronghold. These are the truths that he confesses about his God. And because these are true, he will not fear. Because he knows that God is light, he will not fear. What does it mean to say that, that God is light? Well, well, think about that image. The, the image of light is used in, in any number of ways throughout the scriptures. It, it sometimes refers uh, to, to goodness. Uh, when, when something is light, it is, it is good. When, when something is, is light, you're, you're able to, to, to see the way it's supposed to be. It is, it is something that has, that has life in it. It is something that is flourishing because it is in accord with the truth. These are all images of, of the light. 
And really, you, you can't separate them. They all weave together. Because something is true, it is good. When, when we live in accord with the truth, we are living life as it is supposed to be, and life as it is supposed to be, according to God's design, is good. Satan comes to us with lies that, that appear good, that are presented as good, but, but they lead to death, they lead to destruction, they lead to, to devastation. It is, it is when we live in accord with the truth that we experience the goodness of life, that we experience life abundantly, that we experience life as it is supposed to be. And when, we, when David says that God is his light, he is saying precisely this, he is saying God is the truth. He is the source and the substance of the truth. He is the source and the substance of, of life. He is the one who, who gives us all wisdom to see the way things really are. In God, David knows the truth. He, he knows how to live. He knows the way that life works. And therefore, he knows the way of goodness. He, he knows the path that leads to blessing. God is his Light, and not only is he his light that, that, that reveals to him the way of, of wisdom, but he is his salvation. And again, we, we know what it is to be saved. To be, to be saved is to be delivered from some danger, to be delivered from some uh, destruction, to be delivered even from death itself. But notice God is not only a savior, he is salvation. To be delivered is to be delivered to God, to be in relationship with Him, to, to be His servant, to, to, to be reconciled to Him is the very essence of salvation. To, to know life, uh, to know the Father is to know life, Jesus prays in John 17. And so we see this, this picture that God is light, that God is salvation. Uh, those two, again, cannot really be separated because salvation is to life. Life as it is supposed to be. Salvation is not the freedom to, to go our own way, to do our own thing, but salvation is a restoration to the life for which we were created. The, it, is, it is a restoration to life in the light. And that is who God is for us. He is the Savior, yes, but He is the substance of the salvation itself. He is life eternal. To know Him, to be in relationship with Him is the life for which we were created. So God is light, God is salvation, and God is ultimately our stronghold. You see, He is the one who can keep us in the light. He is the one who can protect us from the enemy who seeks to drag us into the outer darkness. With God, there is no out of the frying pan into the fire. That, that happens to us sometimes. When, when human beings come to our, say, our salvation, uh, things can sometimes get worse. That they can rescue us from one danger only to lead us into another. But there is no such flawed salvation in God. God's salvation is perfect. God's salvation is forever. He is our stronghold. He is our, our refuge. He saves us to himself and he can keep us himself. He will not lose us. He will not allow our enemies to harm us. And this is what David knows about his God. He knows that God is his light. He knows that God is his salvation. He knows that God is the stronghold of his life. And therefore he says, I will not fear. Even when faced with fierce enemies. This is exactly the confidence 
that we are to have. This, this is exactly the, the faith that we are to emulate. And even more so because we have seen God as our light. We have seen God as our salvation. We have seen God as our stronghold in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light. He is the light of God incarnate. He, he comes to, to open our eyes to life as it is supposed to be. He comes to, to show us what goodness looks like. He comes to show us the, the way of, of truth. And He comes to deliver us from the darkness into that light. He is our salvation. He is the one who gives His life as the ransom for many. And He is our stronghold, the one who will not lose any who have been given to Him by the Father. There is no power in this universe that can separate us from the love of God in Christ for us. And so we have David's confidence because Jesus is our life. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our stronghold. This is what we need know to be true. This is what we have believed. And this is what we must confess. But to do this, we, we have to understand how such confessions of faith work. Because I, I suspect that some of you may be thinking here that, that David has sort of gotten the cart before the horse. Isn't, isn't the confession of faith what we're trying to work up to? Isn't the confidence what we're trying to, to kindle? How is it that confessing our faith can be the root of such confidence rather than the, the fruit or the expression of it? You see, we have it in our minds that that you confess your faith when you have faith. And of course, there's a sense in which that is true. The, the person who doesn't have faith cannot confess faith. We, we must believe. We must receive the, the apostles' teaching. We, we, we must receive the truths that have been revealed to us in, in Holy Scripture. We must believe them if we are to confess them. But we know from personal experience, do we not, that sometimes our faith is small. Sometimes our, our faith is like a, a mustard seed. Sometimes we, we struggle to believe the things that we believe. And in such moments of weakness, confessing our faith is the way to strengthen our faith. Going back to what we believe, rehearsing the truths that, that we know to be True, saying out loud what we know to be true about God in the midst of our distress is a way for us to strengthen our hearts. This is one of the reasons that we must regularly meditate upon the person and the, the work of God. And we, we must return again and again to the scriptures to, to see who he is, to, to behold his, his glory, to, to stand in awe and wonder at his strength. To rest secure in His love. It's why we never stop returning to the Scriptures. It's why we, we continue to seek to, to allow these truths to dwell in our hearts richly. It's why we again and again confess our faith. We rehearse the things we believe that we might believe them more strongly. That we might believe them more deeply. That they might, that they might fill our hearts. That they might transform our souls. That's what the confession of faith does. That's why we must begin in our moment of trouble, in our, in our day of, of, of vulnerability, 
We must confess our faith. We must rehearse the things that we know to be true. We must do it here when we gather as the, as the people of God on the Lord's day. And we must do it in our own homes when we stand before God and, and cry out to Him in our time of trouble. Both in our corporate and in our private worship, we must regularly confess our Faith. Whether we're using something like the catechism, whether we're using a, a pre-written confession of faith, or whether we're just simply using the Psalms themselves. We must regularly confess our faith. We must regularly return to those things that we believe. And really that belief that brings us to our, our second point, because, because the confession of faith is at the heart of worship. And that's the second thing that David tells us to do. If, if confessing our faith is the, the first step towards strengthening our faith, then we must learn to prioritize worship. This is what they, we see David doing in verse 4. Look, at, look again at what he writes. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord. Now we know that David has asked for more than one thing. What does he, what does he mean? He, he says, this is the, the pinnacle. This is the priority. This is the, the principal request of my heart. This is the overarching desire. This is the one thing that I have asked for above all else, that I might, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. And this is what I will seek after. This is what I will pursue, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. And to dwell in the house of the Lord, that is the language of, of worship. Notice what it is that he wants to do there. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord that he might regularly see the beauty of the Lord. Now when he talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord, it, it doesn't mean that he, doesn't, he wants to enter the temple or, or the, the sanctuary at this point and, and, and never leave. But rather, he wants it to be his home base. He wants it to be that place that he abides, the place that he, he, he leaves in the morning to go out into the world to do that which he's been given to do, and the place that he returns to at the end that he might, that he might praise the Lord. He, he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wants the, he wants the sanctuary to be his home base because there he can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There he can meditate upon the perfections of God. He can, he can allow the, the glory of the Lord to, to fill him up. Because again, as I said, confidence is, is not merely a sort of Pollyanna optimism. It is not the power of positive thinking. Confidence is confidence in the Lord. It is a confidence that is grounded in, in who he is and who he is for us. And so again, again, we must return to worship, to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, which is something that we do when we are confessing our faith. And so it is confession that leads us to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But he not only wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, he wants to inquire in his temple. He, he wants to, to seek a, a better understanding of the Lord's will. What is it that you would have me to do? How is it that you would have me to live? In the midst of this particular trouble, how do I move forward? He inquires of the Lord. It's what we do in worship. We, we come into His presence. We celebrate His perfections. We, 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 we adore Him. And then we submit to His word preached that we might know how to live in a way that reflects and honors His glory. This is the language of worship. And this is what we are being called to. We are being called to make worship our priority. 
to make it the one thing we seek above all else, that we would be a worshiping people. Whatever else God gives us to do, our first, our chief end is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever in worship. This is what He has given us to do. And if we will give ourselves to this worship, if we will prioritize worship in this way, then we will be able to say with David as he does in verse 5, he will hide me. You hear it? The, the confidence with which he speaks, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And I know that because he will save me, I will be lifted up. My head will be lifted up and I will be able to praise Him. I will be able to, to sing uh, songs of joy before His face. I will be able to make melody to the Lord and offer my sacrifices. This is David's sure assurance. This is the assurance that he reaches in worship. This is the assurance that, that comes to him as he comes into the presence of the Lord. He doesn't get there immediately. Because there's a, a third step that we must take. Look again at, at verses 7 and following. As I said, to this point, David has been speaking with sort of uh, absolute confidence. Whom shall I fear? I will yet be confident. But suddenly, in, in verse 7, the, the tone seems to change. He seems to be desperate. Hear me, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. This is the language of, of desperation rather than confidence. So what's, what's going on? Why has his tone suddenly changed? Well, I would suggest to you that it's not that his confidence in the Lord has been shaken. Notice he, he continues to refer to God as, as his salvation. He continues to refer to God as his, as his help. His, his confidence in the Lord has, has not been shaken, but rather his confidence in himself. As he has come into the presence of the Holy One of Israel, as he has come into the presence of the true and living God, he has had an experience similar to that of Isaiah, described for us in Isaiah chapter 6. David has sought the Lord. He tells us that in verse 8. But upon coming into the presence of God, he has become painfully aware of his own sin. He's become painfully aware that he has no inherent right to, to stand before the face of God. He has become acutely aware of his need for grace. And so what does he do? He asks for grace. He asks first for the, the grace of pardon. We, we see this in verses 8 through 10. Notice what he says. He says... Father, do not, uh, uh, do not hide your face from me. God's eyes are, are pure not to look upon iniquity. David knows this. And he says, so do not turn your face away from me because I am a sinner. Turn me not away in anger. David knows that the wrath of God is, is kindled by unrighteousness, that the wrath of God is kindled by sin. And so he says, turn me not away in your anger. He's, he's not 
fearful that God might be capricious. He's not fearful that God might, might, might just be angry at him for no reason, but rather he knows that God has reason to be angry with him. So he says, turn me not away in your anger. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. Do not treat me as my sins deserve. But rather treat me as you've always treated me. Treat me according to your grace, he says in verse 7. Be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. Forgive my iniquity. And not only does he ask for this grace, but he is confident that he will receive it. Look again at verse 10. He says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He knows himself to be a sinner. He knows himself to be justly condemned. And yet he, at the same time, knows himself to be welcomed into the very presence of God. Though his father and his mother have forsaken him. He's not saying for, uh, that his father and mother have forsaken him. But rather he is saying that even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will not. His love is steadfast. He will not turn me away. He will take me near. And again, this, this is the grace that we are to seek it even more so. Because we know that it is a grace that has been secured for us. Not with perishable things such as silver and but with the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David had the promises symbolized by the, the sacrifices offered in the, the temple. But we have the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who was crucified for us and rose again to declare us righteous. He was delivered up for our sins and raised again for our justification. And therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. That is the wonder of the gospel. That is the wonder that, that David is here celebrating. But, but notice he doesn't stop there. He asks for the grace of, of pardon, but he, he goes on to, to ask for even a, a future grace. We see it in verse 11. He says, teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. When he says, teach me your ways, he, he's not asking merely for, for more information. David knows the law of the Lord. He delights in the law of the Lord. He's meditated upon the law of the Lord. What he is asking for is that training that we heard about in our assurance of pardon this morning. That, that training that, that trains us to renounce ungodliness and to walk in godliness and, and uprightness and, and a path pleasing to the Lord even in this present evil. He's asking God to, to teach him, to, to train him, to equip him, to enable him to walk in a level path, to, to walk in the way of the Lord. Because he knows that his, his enemies are seeking his destruction, and the only safe passage is the narrow way, the way of following God's word. And this again is the confidence that we are to have. Because notice what David says in verse 13. Having expressed his, his confidence in the Lord, having, having asked for the grace of pardon and the, the grace of, of training and teaching, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David knows that God will work all things together for his 
David knows that he shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We are sometimes so eager to distance ourselves from the health and wealth prosperity gospel that we forget verses like this. It is true that, that God's promise of, of goodness does not mean health, wealth, and prosperity. But it does mean goodness. You will know the goodness of the Lord in this life. If you follow me, yes, he may lead you to the valley of the shadow of death, but he will be with you. He will bless you. You will know his, his peace. You will know his inexpressible joy. You will know the, the, the unshakable hope that is yours in the gospel. You will know his goodness even here and now, not only in the age to come. Because he will be working for your good, even as you Wait for him. Even as you wait for him to, to deliver you from whatever troubles are assailing you. And so we must, like David, learn to confess our faith. We must learn to, to prioritize worship, to come into his presence, to behold his, his, his beauty, to, to inquire after his will. And we must seek his grace, not only the grace of pardon. But the grace to, to walk in new obedience. Because as we do these things, as we follow these steps, we will be strengthened, we will be encouraged, and we will be enabled to wait for the Lord without despair, without seeking to turn to the right or to the left, but simply to wait for the Lord, knowing that we will see His goodness in the land and because he gives us such a hope, even in the day of trouble, especially in the day of trouble, that is why we call this good news. Let us believe in each other. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness to us. We, we thank you for the grace that you give us. Not only the grace of pardon, Father, but the, the, the grace of, of to walk in new obedience. Father, may you train us to, to meditate upon your beauty, to inquire after your will, that we might more and more walk in the assurance of the hope that is ours through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name that we pray. Amen.